Hello everyone and welcome to the Power of Music Thinking. My name is Christoph Zürn and this is the podcast for people with a musical heart and a wicked job. We're looking for stories, insights and tools from the big world of music to inspire leaders and followers to listen, tune, play and perform in whatever field you're operating. Hello, today we're in Dublin. We connect with Parik McMahon, Customer Success Manager at HubSpot. Parik has worked in management positions at Google and at LinkedIn. But before that, he was the guitar player of the Thrills that had some major hits from 2003 on. Their first LP was going platinum in the UK and Ireland, and their top hit, Big Sur, has more than 8 million plays on Spotify alone and is still growing. We talk about the similarities in tech business and the record business and the situational leadership of the producer role that brings a group of people to their optimum performance regardless of the circumstances. He shares with us what the HubSpot Unplugged Week means to the team and compares the studio analogy with the importance of the work-life balance in working for a technology company. And Pori gives us an example of the art of remixing, where visual and sonic cues help to make the best decision for the mix. Quote, very invest, you need to divest. Hello, Porik. Welcome to the program. Hello, Christoph. It's good to, good to speak with you and um, great, great to be here and wonderful uh, pronunciation of my name. Bravo. Thank you very much. And thank you that you told me before, because where does it come from, Porik? So it's the Gaelic or the Irish of Patrick. Um, and there is a accent or what we call in Ireland a fada over the A. So it's like P-A slash D. And that technically, phonetically makes the D a W. Uh -huh. So it's P like, so it's almost like P-A-W-R-A-I-C. So um, yeah, there's a the first bit of musical slash um, tone to a name in our conversation. So you're right in right in the middle of sound and pronunciation mm -hmm. and things that we can hear and how we should pronounce them. And that's also my first question. So um, what was your first memorable performance or sonic experience that had an impact on you? Wow. Um, my first, I'll take the sonic experience piece. Um that had a real impact um, was I was, I told the story before maybe, but I, I was seven or eight. And um, I remember our parents had got a, a trial license in Ireland for this new television station. Mm. That was called MTV. And now this is like 1985 or something. And now in Ireland at this stage, in, in 1985, you have two channels. Or sorry, 1986, sorry. Um, you had two channels. You had like radio or TV, station one and station two. Um, so we were part of some like pilot group or something. We didn't have the money for like fancy TV licenses or anything, but we got this thing and they gave us a few different channels, but like there was 10 channels, but channel 10 was MTV. Now I was, I was uh, seven or eight at the time and I'd never seen any kind of popular music, completely musically devoid household as a child, nothing at all around the place. Um, and suddenly it was just this window into like MTV at its zenith. Um, and all these bands, and there was like Headbangers Ball, and there was in, like, Alternative Nation, and there was like Great Cokes, and all these like amazing shows. And I'd never seen any kind of popular music before. Um, so this was just incredible. I don't think my parents knew what was on it. I was just seven right watching stuff that was probably wildly out of my league. But then um, I used to let the VCR record. I got to get like the three hours of on the videotape of, of all the shows and watch them the next day because all the good ones were on later. But uh, um, uh. the but I sat down one morning and I was eating my cornflakes or whatever cereal I was eating, and this black and white video came on. It was like one of, the, and it was this band, and they were in a stadium. And I'd never seen a rock band in my life. I'd never seen mm. a stadium in my life. But it was this live video, and there was a guy with a top hat, and there was this guy in like stretch pants, lycra pants, and they were singing about some paradise city somewhere where the grass is green and the girls are pretty, and it was. <laughs> They were, they looked really cool. It was this rock and the guy had a guitar around his ankles, this gold guitar. And I remember just sitting there with my mouth open going, 
like I hadn't really heard a rock music before, let alone seeing yeah. like a live Guns N' Roses stadium video um, for Paradise City, and it just floored me. I think from then on, it was like, that is, that just sounds and looks amazing. I want to do that. And I remember saving up my pocket money and mum running to the shops to get like Appetite for Destruction on tape, which is my first record. And I remember that was just, that was the moment I always remember just being floored as to what, what on earth was, was, was I seeing and hearing. Wow. Um, and that was, that was rock music for the first time, I think. <laughs> When it comes live in and also the, also the visuals. So the sound and the, and the visual. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit um, about your background and who you are and what do you do for a living? Sure. Um, I'm a jack of all trades. I'm a master of none. I, um, I think I graduated from university. I started my own company in web design and internet technology kind of in the late 90s, early 90s, kind of helping design or designing websites for small enterprises around Ireland. Um, I'm doing some early online marketing back in the, the kind of early days. Um, then I went to university. I was teaching for a few years in technology and business in two different universities. Um, I had loads of students. I loved it. Teaching was a brilliant job. I really got a lot of kick out of it. Um, but then I was in a band part-time, and that band got signed to EMI Virgin Records globally. Um, I left my 100 exam papers after our exam, so if my students marked them up, got on a plane, went to Los Angeles, recorded our debut album um, with the band The Thrills, um, uh -huh. and released, uh, toured for around six years, releasing three records. Um, late OH took a bit of a hiatus. The band kind of decided, um, let's kind of give it a pause, and then we're still on indefinite hiatus. took a year or two to figure out what I wanted to do. was thinking about photography, potentially, and going to study in the Speos Institute to go work with Reuters as a photojournalist, maybe, and then... In 2009, I made the safer decision rather than go get shot at in a in a, um, in a in a bunker in Basra with my Leica. I decided maybe I'd go back into tech and uh, Google was around the corner. So I um, started working in Google for a few years back in business. Then I was working LinkedIn for around six years. Uh, stopped for a year, went back to be a student, did a full-time MBA for a year. We really enjoyed that. And then I've been working at HubSpot, uh, a software company for the last two and a half years. So that's my, um, my, my checkered career. Wow, absolutely. So it sounds like a, like a patchwork career, but there's a, there, there must be a red line. So let's see where we where we hang out. <laughs> It's in there somewhere. <laughs> in the next uh, next uh, half an hour. So um, if, if you talk about HubSpot now, what are you doing and what is HubSpot? Sure. Um, HubSpot, firstly, it's a CRM or a customer relationship management platform. Um, it's kind of think about a database for customers. Um, it's, it sells, it basically uh, sells marketing, sales, service, and operations software that helps businesses grow um, and helps teams collaborate. Um, so uh, the software company that helps businesses grow and um, market and sell their services. So a uh, really good company, high growth, unbelievably challenging. Um, and yeah, we've got, I manage our customer success team for our biggest, most customer uh, complex accounts in the world. So, um, we, uh, we help those customer or those largest customers succeed, um, and grow. So it's a amazing team, amazing company. Look to be part of it. How different is this, the, the work from uh, HubSpot with the, let's say the big tech companies you worked before, like the LinkedIn, LinkedIn, since uh, I don't know when, when, when they were bought by, by Microsoft, was it before? LinkedIn, I was, I was, it was there. I was sitting by the pool on my holidays with my, uh, my fiance at the time. I remember my phone buzzing and wondering what the hell is happening. And I, I asked why I always remember Microsoft buying LinkedIn because it's unusual for my phone to be going on fire and it was very under, under wraps um, when we were, we were acquired. I think it was 2016, the Microsoft acquisition around that time. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's pretty like, I think in tech companies in general, the work is quite similar. You know, mm. they, the companies generally have a really well articulated vision um, in the same way any band does. You know, they have a, a logo, a look, a culture, their own vision. And a lot of those are, are quite, um, quite transferable. Um, but in terms of the work I do, I used to work in, in a little bit of employer branding, um, but mostly just in digital marketing. Hmm. across all the three companies before that you worked at emi or even before you yeah you were the the guitar player or the everything with the strings <laughs> exactly yeah anything with strings it was bass lap steel uh, guitars um hacked banjos um i think anything with a string um i was reasonably okay with and i could throw in a full set of harmony um for we, we generally have tend to have quite like 
uh, Beach Boys esque. I'd like to think um, four part harmony in the band. So um, I'd be sitting up in the top register, um, sounding more like a female than the the twenty five year old that I was. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, strings and strings and falsettos basically. Well, th- that's really exciting, and I just uh, uh, had a look on Spotify. So you still have more than one hundred thousand listeners per month, and uh, I think and, and a Big Sur—that's the, the 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 top number—is uh, around nine million. So can you tell us a little bit more about the thrills and how is it um, working? And uh, working, maybe yeah. T- just tell me if it uh, feels like working in in a band, or how how, how did it work out for you? Um, that's a huge question. Um, the being in a band, yeah, I mean, it's. The, I think it was the, especially in our twenties. Like I always say, it's a young person's game or a young man's game. Um, I couldn't imagine doing it now, but um, it's the yeah. I mean, the, the the best and hardest job I've ever done. Um, like bar none. Um, I think that being in a band is ninety nine percent. Um, like. Uh, like perspiration and one percent inspiration. Hmm. Um, it's a lot. It's work. It's a lot of work. Um, I think the the sheen of what it looks like if you're in the audience as to what like the the life of a musician is 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 largely a myth, which is a self serving myth, which is good for the industry. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, an amazing, amazing experience and like required. Like I think like any kind of in terms of business, it just requires so much hard work, like a work ethic, and it requires to sustainably succeed in it and it requires just a ton of luck as well in equal measure um but yeah a privilege to be able to be to have that opportunity to be able to record like three like really really uh, solid records that i'm still unbelievably proud of to this day and um, to tour you know the world multiple multiple times and play every stage festival tv show you thought of you know it's just a like a wild amazing experience um but definitely uh the, yeah the, the most rewarding and toughest thing i've ever done And can you tell us a little bit more how this was organized? Was it more the touring or was it more first recording and then going on a tour or um, playing in clubs and, 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 and in venues and then going back? So how, how, how does this work? So the re- also the relation being on stage, getting direct feedback from people and maybe getting later to sleep than you might want. And on the other hand, working hard in a certain time pressure to, to get a record out because there's a big company that invested money in you and they want it back. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is so like in the same way you have a real like level of cross-functional teams and tech, you know, and you have matrix organizations, like the record business at the time was no different. It's no different. We had so many people around us and from retail to, to merch, to radio, to promo, to producers, to touring, to merch, to publishing. There's so many partners around you um, that all want you to succeed and all are vested interest. Um, and if you don't succeed, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're cut. Um, and uh, I think the, in terms of the time spent, you're, you're spending a lot of time writing um, mm. in the, wherever you can. You have your entire life to write your de- debut album. Album number two is very different. You're writing it in a in a tour bus in a hotel, and you know. And I remember Connor, our singer, wrote most of the lyrics talking about how his the constant challenge not to be singing about hotel rooms and long distance phone calls on album two um, as a as a trap. But um, certainly, like a, a, a huge amount of time just sitting in a room trying to like architect and write what is a a great record. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a ton of time and investment in that. And then once that's done, then you disappear into the into the studio for three, four months and don't come out until it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you emerge, you're kind of a mess, but you emerge proud, hopefully. And then you um, start the promo and, re- and actual like hard physical touring. Um, and then you're talking about that direct feedback. I think that's where that's where you start to get all of that. You kind of, because your inside out view of the record versus outside in view is very different so how other people what's the difference what's the well, difference you, inside I, out i think like if if, if what will you hear in a record or your message um you you, you lose perspective after a certain time hmm. and you think that the songs are about one way or they won't be received well and then outside in in terms of like externalities people hear them in a different way hmm. uh, or there's some wider zeitgeist that's informing or or promoting or disqualifying the music that in, hmm. in the listener's ear that you're not aware of. Um, but it's up to the kind of gods to, to decide if it's, if it lands well. Um, and that's when you start that kind of like in the same way of like in work at the moment, we have a, 
like in our, in our culture code, we have a massive tenet around um, the power of feedback um, in business, and it's it's core to everything we do in work today. Um, but in music, yeah, it's that direct visceral feedback when you stand on stage and try a new song, or you uh, it really it's releasing you play it live for the first time, and yeah. you stand in front of the stage with everybody singing your first record back at you for the first oh, time, no. and you're like, oh god, it landed, um, and that's and I think that's in terms of like the one percent. I think uh, it's one percent like about about like time you get the flash of an idea but it's 99% crafting it and then similarly it's 99% of running around the world being exhausted but it's the 1% of the day which is the the 70 minutes on stage and that's the that's the real like actual performance and that's when everything is manifest comes together and you disappear to a different plane and you come back off like a a plane of existence on an airplane um, and you um, and you kind of come down from that and then kind of uh, I think that's the that's the kind of crystalline moment of of of, of, the, of the the job I think is is those kind of moments where you're free to just play the songs directly like to, to people in a, in a sweaty environment well um, I like your comparison with the first record and the second record because the first record so some people must know you in some way because you you played in a small venue or you're you're sending your tapes to 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 a record company you might get a producer and they tell you what to do or the other way around they 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 let you do where you're good at because they think if if they get you very poor then this will be a new thing um that, how, how did this work and and, and um, you also had a producer a manager a, a lot of people involved in it and, and um, basically you were five friends playing together yeah we're five friends um since we were like very young like in uh, some of the guys since we were born and the rest of us since we were mm. in our very early teens um and you're right there's kind of a lot of stakeholders like <laughs> by the time you get to a record um you got like the head of the label big voice uh, you got the head of a and r It's his job on the line if the record doesn't work out. You got your producer, uh, Tony Hoffer, did our first and third records. He was unbelievably gifted, like producer and just a great like manager as yeah. well. Like managing, it's the first time I got like an insight into really effective management. Was like five lunatics in a studio and are trying to cur- control these personalities and egos and all the nonsense that goes with it into like the optimum performance. And regardless of how that works, if it's lads, go away for two days. I don't want to see it. You're tired. Go and enjoy yourselves and we'll, we'll, we'll rack up the studio costs, but you need two days. You need to rest your ears. Wow. Um, or if it's, you know, a the big calls of, you know, like massaging the ego of one person going, yeah, the performance was good. Yeah, let's try it again. And, you know, delivering feedback in the moment to get that performance regardless of with the different personalities. It's just, a, it's a masterclass in management, to be honest, and personnel yeah. management versus just producing. And like, obviously he's got serious sonic chops. Um, but that was a, I think watching Tony work was a really good example of just like personnel management, I think as well. Mm. Um, but you got the stakeholder, the producer, the engineers. Um, so a ton of people around you, like, and that can change depending on the, the act. I think for us, um, we didn't play live before we spent, five years trying to write what was our like uh, kind of perfect record like 10 tracks three and a half minutes each we were obsessed like Burt Bacharach and the the art of of like really tight songwriting Mm -hmm. like no filler hooks everything well architected um Mm -hmm. and so we had the album and we we knew what it was and we had a fairly decent um demo of it Um, Mm -hmm. and the at the time the label was very supportive and just saying Like in the head, Felipe Scolian, who's the head at the time, who like signed other bands like Air, great, great bands of that. And um, was this and, before you signed the the contract? Because you just uh, said it was five years that you crafted this first record or the first demo. Was this to get signed, or were you signed to do this? No, we were. We were. We had the record, and then um, we're signed after mm-hmm. like, with the record, kind of in the bag, recorded or written rather. Okay, um, but this means you you did some some big investment um, in time, in money, and in, in in all the people involved. Oh God, yeah, there was like we, before the we got the, the the band or sorry the, the the record deal. We had I think seven years of constant work, yeah, to get to that point. Um, 
we had just this blind, infallible belief that what we were doing was amazing. But nobody, someday somebody would understand. Um, yeah. Even though at the time, a lot of it sounded horrendous. But um, the yeah, by the time we got to sign, the record was was done, was written. And in mm-hmm. that case, we were very lucky with the record like label we chose. The the head Philippe had had a, like a complete belief um, in the in the, what the record was going to be and what it was sound like and our mm-hmm. influences and, and back then. And and kind of in his brief to Tony, he was very much like, I know what this needs. They need to sound like they do. Just let them at it. Um, and it was a, it worked out. Unfortunately, um, in the end. And and when you had the demo, um, how much did it change? Because then you had to go again into the studio, then with a producer. Yeah, like we demoed our, ourselves and kind of students uh, students yeah. around Dublin with friends and stuff. Um, yeah. And I think it, it did change quite a. Bit. It just sounded, in some ways, like more polished and less polished. I don't know. Like hmm. some of the earlier demos, even were quite slick and quite uh, quite produced because we could, and there were uh, were shiny new toys. Whereas, like Tony knew when to like say, no, no, put that toy away. Like we're going to uh, use this old this old mixer because it was used on a Neil Young record, and this old like stand up uh, piano that was used by Carol King or something. And you know, we don't need wow. these fancy fancy tools or compressors. Just like let it breathe a little bit. So even in some ways, some of our earlier demos were a bit like, sounded a bit fake, whereas I think the actual final product oh. was, a, was a little bit breathier, if that makes sense. Well, that's that's interesting. So sometimes when, when I talk about business and music or music thinking, then um, sometimes comes up the, let's say, the metaphor or, or the role of a conductor. So then mm-hmm. you're about classical music but that only works if you have composition and you have a a score Uh, on the other hand um in 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 the last uh, the last years we we talk about improvisation and meaning often improvisation when something goes wrong now let's improvise and then you get the jazz improviser um but in 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 um in talking about uh, pop music and the role of the producer, um, I think that's a very interesting one to 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 understand. So this, let, let's say this this tri- triangle um, uh, for 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 leadership for for who is doing what. And and in your example that uh, he said uh, that that he also has this experience to say, no, we don't do this. Uh, it sounds good and sleek, but um, someone else did it before. So uh, let, let's make it more special. So. Um, can you tell us a little bit more what, uh, about the producing and maybe then also from the first to the second uh, uh, album because the first one was very, very much you and then someone, let's say, made it better, in my words. <laughs> and the second one, then people already know that new sound, that new voice. So you have to do it again. You have to iterate everything and you don't have seven or five years to do the next uh, album. So, no, you don't. Yeah, you don't have your entire life to do it again. But you definitely have the first one. Um, but my question was about the the producer. So, what yeah. makes the producer special, and how can he or or she? Um, how how what, what's the leadership in 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 in, in, in the producer? Um, in terms of leadership, like directly, it's situational. Hmm. Um, it's situational leadership. I think. Um, the role of a record one and a record two are very different animals. I think often require different producers as well. Um, I think our second one was written in the back of tour buses in sound checks. Um, and so it had a bit of more of a live feel because we were playing the songs like in sound checks on stage, on a stage, hmm. on, a, on a state, on a pretty large PA at the time for like a, a venue, um, or in a hotel room or wherever the hell we could. Um, and it just has a different theme. Um, you're in a different place. Like we are in a different places in our lives as five men um, hmm. as well. Um, so you write about different things. And, and I think with with that, you need a different producer. And we took a different producer. And we went back to Tony for number three. But we were, worked with David Sardi. He would work with like Johnny Cash. Remember Johnny Cash, like Marilyn Manson in terms of, wow. of breath. Of breath. Um, amazing guy, but very much our our where the f- it was still obsessed with songwriting in terms of a focus but we wanted the we, their second record was also after like touring the first so we developed quite a good like live and hard-edged approach live where we'd be leaning into songs quite a lot and the second album definitely i think echoed a little bit of that in terms of the tonality of it, the themes of the songwriting and the 
the songs were just a little bit more hard edged, mm-hmm. um, which I think we needed David for as well. Um, but similarly, you know, you're, you're also in a different place. You're, you're bringing all that, the institutional knowledge of your band forward where you were a fresh prospect. Now you have expectations, both yeah. financial, you know, in a business world again, like your, your targets have just gone up because you smashed the first ones. <laughs> and now you have a legacy of, of, of success behind you. So you've got to raise it again. Um, and, you know, you're doing a very different thing. So uh, that, that side of it was, 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 was difficult. And still really proud of the results, but I think it needs, sometimes you need a different leader at a different time in like, if it's a, you know, an organization's maturity or a band's maturity, often you Mm. need different leaders at that different time. And even within the band itself, in terms of like members, you know, certain members may step up or down depending on where the band is at that stage as well. So I think to answer your question, I think it's just like situational. Mm. Oh, great. Great. Because that's also very nice what you already just said, the link to, to, to business, uh, where a lot of things are, are, are situ- situational. Maybe one question also about the, the dynamics or the group dynamics. So if you're five friends, um, mm-hmm. how long can you be friends under all this pressure and different uh, things that are, are, are happening? And how, how does this work in, 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 in or how did this work in the band? Um, <laughs> um, we go all the way down with this one, Christoph. Um, I think, um, in seriousness, I think we were, um, we were very, we were kind of different because we were, I think we we're very privileged. Hmm. Like we were all five friends from, you know, middle-class backgrounds in South Dublin. Um, we came from a background of privilege. We were all educated. Um, we all had really supportive families. So there was only so far we could kind of push it before the others kind of um, like checked each other back into line, and you know we were kind of self, uh, we kind of took care of each other. But we were educated, and we knew the upsides. We knew the business as well. We knew how the music industry worked. Like yeah. so, even though we were pretty blind going into it, you know, in, in retrospect, we, we did know more much more than others at the time. So we were kind of mature. Now other people go into the industry that don't have that privilege, hmm. and they get eaten alive and like spat out. Um, so at least we were going, and I think that kind of helped us as as friends as well, that we're coming from a good background and we great support mechanisms in our family as well. So we're, we're privileged, like white educated males, um, <laughs> essentially. Um, so I think it was fine. Uh, I think there's always a, a kind of in business, I, I, there's a there's a thing around the Schumpeterian waves of creative destruction, which is an old industrial manufacturing concept, I think from Schumpeter or Schumpeter, um, that talks about like the, 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 the relevance in terms of like organizational and, and technology techni- technology and innovational change or innovation change mm-hmm. that like you need waves of creative destru- destruction mm-hmm. and i think it, it kind of in songwriting okay. as well we were the same we would take a song from connor and we would butcher it mm-hmm. we'd rip it up we'd rip it apart and connor would sit back and let his precious baby be dismembered on the floor and then he'd sing another song and we'd take like the And you take a Frankenstein approach, take the head off one one child and put the legs of the other one on and fill it with the chest and the middle eight of another one. And it would become Big Sur. Like Big Sur is three songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a verse chorus and a, a bridge from three different tunes. Um, but key shifted and modulated into like one. And I think Connor in, 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 his, in his defense, uh, this is a conversation between two of us, obviously, so nobody will ever hear it. Um, but in his defense, he was always amazing with that in terms of like being open to feedback and not being overly precious in terms of his songwriting. So we could sit back and like creatively destroy his entities and make, and kind of in terms of innovation, then make them into something better. Um, but he wasn't like overly precious about that, which, which takes a, a specific, I think, type of creative um, to, to be able to sit back. And I think in business, like that's something I, I still like love doing as well. I love like, stepping back and like, you know, being open to ripping something apart because something can be mm. better versus I'm, I'm kind of not fearing change in that way to say, listen, it's going to be a journey. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes from, I think that was informed probably from a lot of that. Oh, that's that, that's interesting. Creative destruction as part of the creative process. So yeah. and 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 this also means you you really get you dive into it. Um, uh, kill your darlings, all these uh, mm. slogans that we know. But it, but it's also trying to get your hands 
you, you get your hands dirty and really get everything out of it. Is there a switch from from the music to to the business? Because if there is a switch in your career, because then you, then you went to I think EMI and then which is still in the in the music um, area, and then you go to 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 Google and until now to HubSpot. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see any comparison or or? Could you say that you are prepared in the way how you worked as a musician to be a better a better you than you are now in in your business? Yeah, I I, I don't think there's like a massive difference between the two in some ways. I mean, obviously on the surface there is, um, but like deep down, you're if talking about like red threads. I mean, the, the threads between those two things are you're working with people in. Um, in very creative environments, you're working with very ambitious people. Mm -hmm. um, they are generally working in an industry that's like that is moving fast as the music industry does. Um, they rely on the same principles. Um, like I, 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 I think that the, the person I was as a musician and I am a business, or that I am when I sitting in my home now, there's not really much of a difference or a delta between those three at all. Um, I think that's also just getting older as well. We just You're a bit too old to care about our places anymore, <laughs> and we all do it to some degree. But I think the person, if I was to, uh, if I was today, like stop work and go to tour our first record again, and um, yeah. I think I'd be pretty much the same as I was in my personality at work. You know, I don't think there'd be any real difference between between those things at all at this stage. I think maybe if I was twenty five, might be different, but now no. Does it help now? Do do you sometimes think about? Um, th that you get reminded in situations in business where you think, oh, hey, hang on, that's some kind of more or less the same pattern than we had before when we were touring or we're, we're do doing a record. Uh, do you have these moments? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, and that's where, the, and that's where the, 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 they're the same. So like to give an example around that, um, I remember, uh, so work-life balance is a huge thing in tech right and you know at hubspot for instance we've got a week off in july hmm. um for the whole company to recognize the fact that like it's called uh, hubspot unplugged um obviously okay. a, tip, a tip as well but it's a it's a week off for the entire business and we have a skeleton team obviously that's going to keep the whole the company on. so the whole company really unplugged every, literally unplugged literally everybody so the business is going to stop now we have a skeleton crew and our customers are 130,000 customers need not worry their entire tech stack <laughs> platforms going down um but we have our crews on like there but yeah the business is taking a week off um now that's in terms of that's speaking to the the concept or the, the tradition of burnout and you know just against the to music industry um burnout and stress in tech and the kind of speed of quarter on quarter rampant growth share price pressure everything um like getting 120 130 growth every single year um and that you know that takes its toll on people and i remember so work-life balance is something like as a manager I try and lead from the front on or try to keep an eye on so i can raise my family and and not get too stressed but um it's, it's the studio analogy is i remember thinking about work-life balance and then sitting like looking at a, making a prioritization matrix of what was urgent what was important what was not urgent or important on x y axis and dumping everything in the bottom left and kind of re recalibrating where i was spending my time I, was mm. like, i want to get involved in project a which means i need to remove these three things in the bottom left mm. and i remember going like i can't just get involved with this unless i take something out it's mm. like a, a zero-sum game or a non-zero-sum game i need to invest my time somewhere i need to divest somewhere else and i was looking at this matrix and i guess flashback back to a conversation with tony um, on our first record where he's talking about like the 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 how efficient a or how well a mix sounds uh -huh. and, and, and the, the art of mixing is is a real art and a science together um, and i remember he'd be sitting with me in front of the desk you know in a big massive um whatever 100 and whatever track desk and so like 100 different tra uh, tracks Just tracks, automated automated faders, you know, all linked up to like just tons and tons of equipment. And looking like listening on the reels and watching, you know, the kind of waveforms in terms mm -hmm. of like the, the Pro Tools um, setup. And he was like, right, pork. You know, I'm, I, I remember joking. I said, I want more guitar, Tony. And he said, well, every guitarist wants more mm -hmm. guitar. And then if the solo comes in, and I said, I want more, I want more of my solo. And he's going, okay, pork, like, look, like listen to your solo in the mix where it is now. And they turn it up. And then he's like, look at the waveform as well and look at where that mix is playing. So if you think about a guitar line, that like exists up in like the treble range. 
So in terms of like hit, uh, kilohertz and stuff in like the two and a half, five kilohertz range, it's up mm. the top end, the trebly bit, basically. Mm. And he said, like, if you turn the guitar up, that's now inhabiting more of that 2.5 kilohertz range. Mm. You need to do something to counteract that. Like, what else is in that range? And I go, okay, uh, you listen and look. And I'm like, right, um, the hi-hats, like the t- oh. that's there, right? Yeah. The right hand of the keyboard is up there. The plinky, the plinky upright is sitting in there. My full set of harmony is sitting in there behind it. Um, there might be some cymbal uh, decay sitting in there. Um, and then counter to that all down the other end are all the mids and the basses and you know the left hand of the piano and the bass drum and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So you said, yeah, I can turn up, I can turn up the guitar, but like what happens around it? Oh. And suddenly I couldn't hear, yeah, I can hear more guitar. Like, that's very clear to the ear and I'm happy. <laughs> but with a production ear or like a, a, an objective ear, I, I couldn't hear as much. My vocal was being swamped out. Oh. This is the falsetto and I'm missing that high fifth harmony. Um, over the mix, it was missing. It was taking out a little bit of the attack of the sit of the hi hat. Um, so he was like, "Yeah, that's fine. Now, to turn up that guitar, let's do it." But now we got to rebalance all this sort of stuff around. So like, yeah. like, what isn't what isn't important? We'll be back at your vocal a little bit. I was like, "No, God, no, you can't do that." Um, <laughs> we'll be back at the piano's right hand. Sure, take take out the penis. Um, but it was a that kind of like balance of, of adding and subtracting and. And, you know, where you invest, you need to divest. And I remember sitting there going, God, I remember that conversation with Tony and um, and I had the principles were, were kind of essentially exactly the same. Wow, that's interesting. So, and it was an, uh, also visual and and sonic that, that you compare. And and also the, the learning here is if you, if you have the feel to turn up one instrument from the hundred instruments on the sliders, um, it will have an effect on... Not on the on the others, but on the total sound experience of the whole, and it means yes. if you if you turn it up, you in in some way turn the others down or bring them Damn. into trouble. Oh, that's yeah. um, oh, that's in a very yeah, in a very nice and interesting. Um, the composition was done and the recording was done, so that's the mixing at the end to really make it sound good, so that everything that should be heard and that's intended should, um, yeah, should should be heard by by everyone. Exactly, yeah. In the same way, you know, like a, the, the cut of a movie is is can completely change, or the soundtrack uh, versus like the the thirty five versus the, the the film that was shot, like that's lying in canisters. And um, yeah. by the time you sit down at an editing desk and cut that film, you can make it into anything. Um, yeah. You know, there's a whole art to, to that in film as well. And I guess in, in, in business as well, you have your, um, you have parallels too. But um, yeah, like the, the, the mix is a, is, a, is a huge part of making something um, like shine. And be, we, we did remixes of various versions of songs. Like we have a, mm-hmm. we have a remix of Big Sur that we did because AAA, the AAA were format. Um, at the time, in basically American radio at the time, was super like highly, high, highly mastered, very produced, um, kind of edgy. It needed to be loud, and if you were trying to get on like K Rock or some big like like North American radio station, it needed to sound like that to be fit into the format at the time. And I remember we remixed Big Sur like for that audience. Oh. I mean, I, ha- I hate it. it. It sounds loud and brash and edgy. It just sounds like shit. Um, but anyway, I remember we were forced to do that. And that was the power of the mix um, to try and desperately get our product um, onto those, uh, those those high margin shelves. And did this get uh, did this mix? Did this uh, get on the record? Oh God, no! Thankfully, it was like a po- it was a it was a mix for the single after ah, right. for radio. So it, it might it might be on some B side version of a single somewhere. I think yeah, okay. because um, I think that's interesting. If you make a mix, let's say for radio or for a, a certain audience uh, or radio audience, and you make it for an album later for the single. Um, mm-hmm. Now we're in Spotify times, <laughs> where yeah. I, just, I just look for Big Sur. And then, is, what yeah. kind of uh, mix do I get? Do I do I get the the album mix, or do I get a Spotify mix? Which uh, you, yeah, you, you hopefully get the album mix, and if you're a premium subscriber, you get the proper um, <laughs> whatever KBPS version of it, and not the super compressed hideous one. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and in the same way, like we just saying, like it's it's essentially just localizing a product. Um, you know, and the hope spot will be a ton of localization efforts as well, where you take product development and you localize it. You take advertising message and you localize it. Hmm. Um, so kind of what we were doing was trying to penetrate a, a North American market 
that had yeah. a certain listening profile and listening like you know um like taste um yeah. and generally like playing it playing or pandering to that audience with a localized product um albeit like taking away a good bit of the original vision of the song while doing so but that's business you know oh, yeah absolutely that so uh, as a multinational with the with the stress on the national <laughs> you have yeah, to, exactly. to nationalize or to localize uh, your message otherwise you would not get it across or as um, customer success the customer success would be different per country or per localization as it is yeah absolutely ah, but who's the producer in in the localization business oh um who's the producer local um i would say the country lead the country lead Oh, so whoever is the, the the like the head of insert country here, um, oh. I think that's that generally tends to be on the sales side in, in tech companies. But like the the head of France for HubSpot, or like and LinkedIn, like the head of um, uh, emerging markets, or the head of oh. um, you know uh, Benelux um, would be would be that kind of like I think localized leader who would drive the the local vision of what they they're. Um, their country strategy is and what they're what they want to get out of like the DAC market or the yeah. Benelux market. They might have different focuses and different customer profiles. I think they would be probably the most like senior stakeholder or kind of thought leader or producer. Um, I think of of a localized message. So if you bring out, if you want to bring out your album uh, in in different countries, you really have to listen first to to your country how they how they might respond to it and how they how they listen. So exactly. actually, you produce for listening. Correct. Yes, I think yeah, you do. Absolutely. So, so it's not only about you, about your personality. That's part of it. That's the, that, that's the, maybe the content, and uh, and uh, but but the empathy part, the empathy to understand the other side, and you have to to find the right mix between the empathy of how people uh, yeah listen or or or, or, or yeah or, or um, yeah consume your product, and on the mm -hmm. other hand, who are you as a company and how much of you can you bring in in relation to how people uh, are open to to, to uh, are open. yeah it, yeah and i think it's a, it's a, it's like it's not an absolute like it's a balance of both um yeah. and like in music especially um you know you might want to write a double record with 48 songs on it but you yeah. know like half of a rubbish um or you might like you might say listen that's what we'd love to do but maybe yeah. it's not the best like commercial decision Or maybe it's not like so. There is a balance of like listening, like we're like, the, 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 like versus just completely folding and you know ditching your own artistic credibility just to make stuff that's going to sell. Yeah. And like, and and we could have done that on a number of occasions. I think one one example of that actually was, um, on the first record, we we wrote it, although it's like anchored in California, like in terms of sound and if you think about the cities that are mentioned on the record, like San Diego. Um, LA, Las, Your Love is Like Las Vegas, Big Sur, um, Santa Cruz. You know, it's just, these are all song titles. Like, they're all over the place. Um, and we wrote the record in Ireland where we were, like, morbidly depressed in the rain hmm. after being in America, like, uh, before the band, um, living on a beach in San Diego for, for, for a summer. So we were, like, in a basement in, in a horrible street in the rain, like, uh, like, drug addicts outside and just in this tiny, cramped room trying to write songs. Um, in that kind of seven-year investment before the record deal you were mentioned earlier. Um, and we had two options, I think. Like, right about our amazing summer we had and these great places we went to as, a, as an aspirational anchor, or right about like grim, rainy Dublin at the time and being like, you know, not good enough to get a record deal and just generally depressed. Um, and we just we just used these songs, like these, 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 these cities or these places as kind of placeholders. Hmm. or placeholder lyrics and kind of just put them in there and it was like just don't go back to Big Sur it's not about going back to Big Sur it's about like not being melancholic and nostalgic because mm -hmm. when you go back to something it's not the same right it's not like a tourist ad for Big Sur it's not about the town at all that's just a placeholder for this feeling as such and um, and at the end of the record we sat down and we looked at we looked at all the lyric sheets and we're like god there is literally like American like California cities all over this record and we actually rewrote a lot of the record like um, just don't forget last summer instead of just don't go back to Big Sur 
like you know, you know alternate lyrics like stripping out the cities because we knew we were probably going to get tons of abuse. Why are these South Dublin guys singing about all these Californian cities? Hmm. Um, I'm like, we're going to this is going to come back and bite us. We're going to get like pretty rough. Like who do these guys think they are? Like uh, the birds <laughs> and Mill Young or something? Like living in Laurel Canyon? And, yeah. um, Some kind of copycats. They're they're copying our sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that's you know, and and, and we, we we were going to change them, um, and we said no. Like, kind of fuck it, we'll stick stick by it. These are this, this is the way we wrote the songs and like to see what happens. And it would have been a tragedy. And uh, but the pressure, I think, there were was pressure to change them all. Hmm. Um, it, 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 it's not from outside um, internally within ourselves um, and thank God we didn't it wouldn't yeah. have been half the record without it and we just said no no like okay the audience we might get stick for this but you know what and that's, a, that's what I'm saying it's a balance between you know, the, the external forces of a market on your product and what you want to give and it's a mutual understanding of both without completely caving because completely caving in this case to the externalities might have actually ruined the actual yeah. stance and what it stood for in some way. So better, better stand, better stand for it, what it was polarizing and annoy some people. Um, but uh, in the long run, it was, a, you know, the correct strategy as such. Well, that sounds like a, like a learning for, for business as well to, to, sure. to be as, as much you as a brand and to listen as much as possible to your, Uh, to your audience and sometimes also stakeholders are just more than just the customers and yep. try to to bring them in the balance yeah now oh, sounds um, sounds like an uh, sounds very good <laughs> so is there anything that that else that you would like to share with business people what they could learn from musicians or from or from music um Oh God, I don't know if I'm the one to be teaching. Um, well, and, and we already touched a lot. So, so yeah, yeah. I think this, um, um, I, I love very much your your creative destruction part and really, really getting uh, getting into it. We talked yeah. about the producer and, and the role, and also about what we just said, the, the balance. Is there anything that people that might not know the music, and now um, I will put it in the show notes, so people sure. will have the to listen but is there one or two things that you would say this is really this is something where you yeah where you might hire musicians because they're the better collaborators <laughs> yeah i mean like i think um i think yeah, I'd, I'd, i'd love to hire more musicians i think like, there's a lot of people on my team who who are musically gifted um i do think they bring i think they bring a emotional intelligence potentially that you know um i, I think it, There's an emotional intelligence thing that comes to music and, and to business mm. that like that year, I think you need to move people emotionally with a song, mm. um, be it like a dance mix to like a soft like ballad or whatever it is. Like you need to move and impart emotionality, emotion to a song. And I think the same as in business. You're dealing with people at the end of the day. I think if you can make people like feel a certain way, um, you're going to be saying the right words and not just like talking about talking nonsense and making them feel good. Yeah. Um, but if you can, I think if you if you are uh, have a level of emotional intelligence, I think that that's just an arts thing. I think it's if you're an actor, you might have it, or if you're a filmmaker, or if you're a musician, yep. um, I think your the emotion uh, is is key. Like that's 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 critical for impacting and influencing people in business. If you can affect how they feel and bring them with you, and I think that's something that like you you do open yourself up to in art and songwriting. That you know you want to be able to understand like what are you making people feel. Um, I think that's one piece. I think I think the other is around like um, like one thing with COVID is that you know, we're doing business remotely, so I'm speaking to you versus jumping on a plane and going to a cafe and having a coffee and doing this. Um, I know and having even maybe even a more in depth like conversation and experience. Um, but then that has brought with it a it's kind of pulled away some of the emotion. Um, oh, yeah. I think it's it's um, like I used to be a, a real fan of I call it MBWA, which is managed by wandering around. And um, I think it's an old system that came from, the, I think, an old Gemba traditional Japanese system for Toyota. Of, yeah, well, what managing MBWA? MBWA, it's managing by wandering around. You know, you can see by somebody's shoulders, you can see by the way they walk in in the morning, you can see by the tone of their voice, you can see by, oh, they're wearing different shoes or they're, hmm. you know, you, you could kind of, you knew, or, or if you were to kind of, if I wanted to pitch something to a business head, I'd, I'd do a drive by their desk and see what kind of mood they're in. 
And mm-hmm. I say, oh, he looks really pissed off. I'm not going to go near him now. Or then she looks like in a great mood. I'm going to, this is a good time. And you kind of have all these nuances or you want to influence somebody, you just pull them into a room quickly and, or like drop by the desk and say, hey, you okay? And yeah. and, and you can, I think you can be really effective as a manager and a business person doing that and get cross-functional buy-in by like just popping over to another building and taking the time to, to speak to somebody face-to-face and so much more nuance and, and wandering around. And you can't really do that. And we have great tools like Slack and HubSpot to help those things. But, you know, um, it's not the same. And I think that's – I was thinking about this when you know, I talked to you recently and how much I missed that. And then I remember like the, the, the musical equivalent of that was the importance of sight, the importance of sight lines. So sight lines. What, what do you sight mean? lines in a, in a band? So where you would um, where you can see the other musician. Hmm. And like a sight line in a band is really important. Like, like on stage, can you see the the bass drummer's right foot? Hmm. Can you? Or in studio, can you? Like, are you? Um, in studio, you're in a round, are you looking at each other, are you feeding off in the sight lines, like visually seeing somebody's about to lean into a, a piano stab because of their shoulders means you can echo that in guitar. And wow. sight lines are key. You don't like, you play very differently if you can see each other and hear each other versus if you were like locked in isolation beats. I'm not hating isolation beats or ISO beats in the studio yeah. because you can see each other, you're just listening, you've got your eyes closed, and you can. when you can see someone, you can see them prompting a note. You can see they're actually yeah. going to lean ahead of a note and attack it. Right. Which is going to push you forward, um, yeah, giving like, you uh, a cue to to move forward or to change or yeah, yeah and, and those cues with like established bands would be just completely subconscious now, you know, and it would just be another language that nobody else would understand and they couldn't even articulate, but you yeah. can just hear. So I'm not even going to try and articulate anymore because I'm just going to do it to service. But um, but I think in, in terms of sightlines, remember them being so important to you and on stage and uh, watching other people versus you know, and if a musician has had their head down for the whole show. You know they're not going to be most yeah. dynamic performer potentially, yeah. um, and I think in, in 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 work it's the same. I really miss like the mm-hmm. sight lines um, these days in the same way of of, of that like impossible or invisible language, and that just informs you and helps you. And that's yeah one one thing I I kind of been thinking about a little bit recently as well. I don't know how to solve for it now, but anyway, I should probably have a, like a resolution to this complaint, um, <laughs> but I'm not sure what it is yet. But um, this is something I'm thinking about. Farik, thank thank you very much. That's th- that really sounds good. The, the sidelines. So this also for when people listen to us now, they can think about, hey, where are the sidelines in my business, or where are the sidelines when I go into a concert? Um, what is the conductor doing, or where's the producer in, in, uh, when you're on stage? So yeah. interesting, interesting, uh, yeah, very interesting stuff. So thank you very much for for sharing this with us, and yeah, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks to you, Christoph. Thanks to you and your, your audience. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate this because listening is one of the top leadership skills and I feel honored about this. It is my mission to find, create and share inspirations for meaningful collaboration based on music analogies. If you want to support this, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating or write a review on iTunes or Spotify. And more inspirations can be found on musicthinking.com. We have a blog and you can download the Music Thinking Framework. And finally, I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need help with a business challenge, please reach out to me via email podcast at musicthinking.com.